Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 1, Part 1 of our Internet History Project. For more information on this project and to find out how you can participate in it, please visit www.internethistorypodcast.com. That will tell you more about what the chapters are all about and what we're trying to do here. Chapter 1 is going to be all about Netscape and how it represented the Big Bang of the Internet era. Netscape is the forerunner, and in many ways the template for a lot of the themes that we are going to be examining throughout this history. So to kick things off, we're going to take a look at what came before Netscape, which is the Mosaic Browser. So without further ado, here is Chapter 1, Part 1, entitled Mosaic. Netscape Communications Corporation held an initial public offering, or IPO, on August 9, 1995. Netscape shares were originally priced at $14 a share, but at the last minute, the price was lifted to $28 per share. When the markets opened at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, however, Netscape's stock did not open with it. Buyer demand was so great that an orderly market could not immediately be made. Interest from individual investors was so overwhelming, in fact, that callers to the retail investment firm Charles Schwab were greeted by a recording that said, Welcome to Charles Schwab. If you're interested in the Netscape IPO, press 1. At Morgan Stanley, one retail investor offered to mortgage her home and put the proceeds into Netscape stock. The first trade did not hit the ticker until 11 a.m. that morning. The price of that first trade was $71 almost triple the offer price 
and more than five times the price from the night before. Over the course of the day, Netscape, with the ticker symbol NSCP, reached $75 before ending the day at a still respectable $58.25. Netscape had only existed as a corporation for about 16 months. Since its inception, it had generated revenues of only about $17 million. It had nothing in the way of profits on its balance sheet, but at the end of trading that first day, the stock market valued the company at $2.1 billion. Netscape itself raised $140 million in the deal. These days, we're used to embryonic technology companies debuting on the stock market to soaring valuations, but in August of 1995, such an event was almost unheard of. These were the days before CNBC served as the background noise in coffee shops and restaurants around the world, and long before IPOs were a national obsession. Even so, the Netscape IPO made a splash. The financial press was in awe, albeit skeptically. On its front page the next day, the Wall Street Journal said, quote, It took General Dynamics Corporation 43 years to become a corporation worth $2.7 billion. It took Netscape Communications Corporation about a minute, end quote. Plenty of commentators were shocked that a company that had yet to make any sustained profit could be valued so highly. Still others were puzzling over what this internet thing even was, and why it was making people suddenly very rich. As August 9th also happened to be the day that Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead died, a joke made the rounds on Wall Street that went like this. Question, what were Jerry Garcia's last words? Answer, Netscape opened at what? And to be sure, a lot of the people involved in Netscape had suddenly gotten very rich. Co-founder Jim Clark's 20% stake in the company was worth $663 million on the day of the IPO. Early Netscape employees were worth hundreds of millions of dollars on paper, at least, including its baby-faced 24-year-old co-founder, only a few months out of college, who was suddenly worth $58 million. Only a few short months later, in December of 1995, Netscape's stock price would hit $171 a share, more than six times the price at the IPO. A few weeks after that milestone, that baby-faced 24-year-old co-founder we spoke of, Mark Andreessen, would grace the cover of Time magazine. Andreessen's Time magazine cover story ran on February 19, 1996. Fourteen years earlier, on February 15, 1982, the Time cover boy was a then 26-year-old tech superstar named Steve Jobs. The headline in 1982 read, Striking It Rich. It signaled to the world that the first Silicon Valley revolution slash gold rush was in full swing. Now in 1996, Andreessen was pictured barefoot and snarling, or yawning, depending on your interpretation, sitting under the headline, The Golden Geeks. For those who were listening, and for those of a certain technological persuasion, and perhaps for those of a certain age, the message was loud and clear. A new revolution was on and a new gold rush. Today, young 20-somethings dream of coding their ways to billion-dollar fortunes. Today, the phone in your pocket is more powerful than every computer involved in the moon landing. 
Today, it's possible to know in real time what your high school girlfriend had for lunch. Netscape did not make all or even any of these things possible, but it very much set the stage. The Netscape IPO was the Big Bang that started the internet era. That picture of a barefoot Mark Andreessen on the cover of Time magazine was what started young geeks dreaming of Silicon Valley riches all over again. Netscape would not define the internet era, or even survive it, but it was the first of its kind, and in many ways it was the template for all of the people and companies that would come to the internet because of it. Mark Lowell Andreessen was born far from Silicon Valley in Cedar Falls, Iowa, on July 9, 1971. He grew up in New Lisbon, Wisconsin, population 1,450, where his father was a feed salesman and his mother was a shipping clerk at Land's End. He had one sibling, a brother, five years his junior. If we're following the classic template of the young tech prodigy, then Mark would have to be interested in computers at a very young age. And indeed he was. At age nine, he taught himself the basic computer language from a book he checked out from the library. In the sixth grade, he used a school computer to write a program that would do his math homework for him. In the seventh grade, his parents finally bought him his first computer, a Commodore 64, which he used to program his own games. But the script does not play out completely. While Andreessen was interested in computers, they were not his obsession by any means, not even his primary focus. Teachers and friends from the time uniformly remark about young Mark's varied polymath interests. Andreessen himself has said that his favorite subjects in school were English and philosophy, not math or science. When it came time for college, Andreessen has said that he settled on computer science as a major because, quote, it required the least amount of work. Andreessen also does not fit into the modern script of the solo hacker coding away in his dorm room and eventually creating a business empire. In fact, it doesn't seem that a young Mark Andreessen had any world-changing ambitions or industry-disruptive visions at all. The early 1990s saw Andreessen, who was a National Merit Scholar, attending the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and working part-time at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, which happened to be nearby. From now on, by the way, I'm going to refer to the National Center for Supercomputing Applications as the NCSA, just for simplicity's sake. Again, though, it's worth pointing out that Andreessen was not some tech prodigy set free amongst the supercomputers at the NCSA to follow his muse. He was, in fact, just an hourly worker, making $6.85 an hour. He was tasked with menial coding work for an NCSA project called Polyview, which was a three-dimensional visualization software program that allowed scientists around the world to model complex data sets. The project was not his brainchild, nor apparently was it his cup of tea. He simply delivered the lines of code assigned to him, and no one at the time really remembers Andreessen as a particularly exceptional programmer. He was, in short, a low-level drone. I emphasize all this not to diminish the quite considerable talents of Mark Andreessen, 
but to simply make the point that, by all accounts, Mark Andreessen did not set out to change the world when he got to college. The fact that he did so was on account of the fact that he happened to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. The NCSA was a government-funded research center. It had been set up to advance supercomputing research and development. Unfortunately for the program, supercomputing was sort of on the way out. The microprocessor revolution meant smaller machines from companies like Sun Microsystems and Silicon Graphics could do everything supercomputers could do. Plus, the new machines were smaller and cheaper. A large supercomputing facility like the NCSA was passé, but the higher-ups hadn't admitted as such, at least not yet. The NCSA had, as Andreessen told an interviewer, quote, a very large established budget, many millions of dollars a year, and a fairly large staff, and, frankly, not enough to do, end quote. But this was why Andreessen happened to be in the right place at the right time. Being what it was, the NCSA happened to be fully hooked up to the internet. This was in a time when access to the internet was a very rare thing indeed, limited largely to academic facilities and research projects like those at the NCSA. In fact, when the National Science Foundation Network, NSFNet, was set up in the mid-1980s to promote advanced research and education networking, the original backbone of the system was set up in Champaign-Urbana itself. By 1991, the University of Illinois was hooked up to the improved T3 system, which meant that when Mark Andreessen was there, he would have access to one of the fastest network connections available anywhere in the world. During his time at Champaign-Urbana, Andreessen would get quite used to the internet and all its various functions because he would use it regularly in his schooling and his work. All this meant that he was perfectly placed to be an early adopter of the latest and greatest internet innovation, the World Wide Web. Now, this episode is not intended to tell the story of the development of the internet or the development of the World Wide Web generally, but suffice to say that when the web and HTTP and HTML and all of that good stuff were formulated and made public by Tim Berners-Lee, a British researcher at CERN, it was a very big deal. In the early 90s, the web brought a publishing element to the internet for the first time, with the hypertext linking of documents that we generally think of when we think of the internet today. In November 1992, there were 26 known World Wide Web servers in the world. One of them just happened to be at the NCSA at the University of Illinois. So Mark Andreessen was perfectly positioned to be an early and eager participant in the embryonic World Wide Web. Indeed, as early as 1992, we can find him on the www-talk message boards, chatting with Tim Berners-Lee and others about the development of HTML and the web generally. It's important to stop here, though, and note that the web had grown out of the internet, and the internet had grown out of research and academia. And that meant that even the web, at least in its beginning forms, was not exactly friendly to the average computer user. In its original incarnation, the web did not even support images, only text. And since it came from academia, 
it ran mostly on Unix computer systems, Unix being the operating system of choice for academia. Indeed, the first web browsers like Tim Berners-Lee's own World Wide Web and P. Yon Lee's Viola were only usable on Next or Unix computers. In contrast, most mainstream computer users in 1993 used PCs or Macintosh machines. Andreessen himself described the early web this way, and uh, this is a long quote from an interview he gave to uh, George Gilder. Quote, PC Windows had penetrated all the desktops. The Mac was a huge success, and point-and-click interfaces had become part of everyday life. But to use the net, you still had to understand Unix. You had to type FTP commands by hand, and you had to be able to do address mapping in your head between IP addresses and host names, and you had to know where all the FTP archives were. You had to understand the IRC protocols. You had to know how to use this particular newsreader and that particular Unix shell prompt. And you pretty much had to know Unix itself to get anything done. And the current users had little interest in making it easier. In fact, there was a definite element of not wanting to make it easier, of actually wanting to keep the riffraff out. So the big idea that Mark Andreessen had, the idea that would change the world, was simply to let the riffraff in. It occurred to him that if someone could make a better web browser, they might also make the web itself better. More importantly, why couldn't someone make a web browser that was more friendly to the average not-so-tech-savvy user? Why not add support for images? Why not make a browser that was Windows and Mac compatible so that normal users would feel comfortable using the web for the first time? It occurred to Andreessen that if you could make the web more interesting and more user-friendly, then there was no telling what this most democratic of new mediums would be capable of. Now, we're going to need to pause here for a bit of historical he said, she said. It certainly came down to me over the years, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that the Mosaic browser was created as a sort of skunkworks project under the noses of the higher-ups at the NCSA. In later years, Mosaic team members who would go on to found Netscape liked to promote the notion that Mosaic was something that they did because they were bored and that the NCSA wasn't very interested in what they were doing, at least at first. As we'll see in later episodes, they would certainly have reasons for wanting to promote this version of events, but it's not entirely clear that this was the case. Joseph Harden, who was the manager of the software development group at the NCSA, has said in interviews that it was another NCSA employee, Dave Thompson, who was the first one to introduce both himself and Mark Andreessen to early web browsers. He has said, quote, Both of us looked at the screen. Dave described what he had in front of us, and we said, We can do better than that. That's a complicated system, and the interface looks terrible. Unquote. By Hardin's recollection, it was Andreessen who ran with the idea of making a simpler web browser, because Thompson, who wanted to work on the project, was actually kept on existing projects he was already assigned to. What we can know for sure is that a web browser was just the sort of project that the NCSA wanted to pursue at the time. A web browser fit right in with the sort of software tools that the NCSA was already working on. Indeed, interviews with Larry Smarr, who was the head of the NCSA at the time, 
indicate that making the internet more democratic was very much part of the NCSA's evolving purview. An earlier project, NCSA Telnet, followed a development evolution that would very much mimic what the world would later see with Mosaic. An NCSA program called Collage pioneered cross-platform real-time workstation sharing programs. And the NCSA was instrumental in developing the computing infrastructure and standards that would make images as common to computing as text. So the idea to add images to the web, again, this was straight out of what the NCSA was already doing in the early 1990s. So the NCSA's version of history is that the browser project was an NCSA development project from day one. It might have been a smaller side project, but it was part and parcel with what the NCSA was all about at the time. Now, let's look at the counter version of history that would be put forward by those who would go on to found Netscape. It goes something like this. Several of the younger members of the NCSA team were bored with the esoteric research projects they were working on. When Mark Andreessen begins going around the office evangelizing the web and the web browser idea, he's able to attract interest from these other programmers who are otherwise twiddling their thumbs. One of the people Andreessen started evangelizing to was his colleague, Eric Bina. Bina was older than Andreessen, almost 30, and a full-time salaried NCSA employee. Andreessen, remember, was hourly. But more importantly, Bina was also a much better programmer than Andreessen. According to this version of events, Bina initially begged off the browser project, but Andreessen's enthusiasm and persistence eventually won him over. Internet lore says that the project partnership was sealed late one night in an Espresso Royale cafe in Champaign-Urbana when Andreessen exhorted Bina, quote, let's go for it, end quote. The browser project that Andreessen and Bina went for began sometime in December 1992. A largely unsung hero of both Mosaic and, eventually, Netscape is Eric Bina. Bina wrote the majority of Mosaic's code. Because he was twice the programmer Andreessen was, he was the only one of the two who could have written some of the features that Mosaic included. But the features were also what made Mosaic such a leap forward in browser technology, and it was Andreessen who was coming up with the features. In that way, they were the perfect team. Andreessen with the larger vision and Bina with the coding chops to make Andreessen's vision work. The division of labor seemed to work out well for the pair. As Bina later told an interviewer, quote, We each did the job that most appealed to us, so each of us thinks that the other did the hard stuff. End quote. In a little over a month of nearly round-the-clock tag-team coding, they had their browser ready. It was called XMosaic because it ran on a Unix-flavored operating system called XWindow. On Saturday, January 23, 1993, the official 0.5 version of the browser was posted to the internet on the NCSA's servers. The accompanying release note from Andreessen himself, posted by marka at ncsa.uiuc.edu, said, quote, by the power vested in me by nobody in particular, alpha slash beta version 0.5 of NCSA's motif-based networked information systems and worldwide web browser, XMosaic, 
is hereby released. End quote. About a week later, no less a web celebrity than Tim Berners-Lee himself forwarded Mark's announcement to web-related newsgroups. Quote, An exciting new worldwide web browser has come out, written by Mark Andreessen of NCSA. Using Xmotif and full of good features, it installs very easily, as the binary is completely self-sufficient. This pilot project got plenty of notice from other NCSA employees. They wanted in on it. Because Xmosaic was always meant to be the initial trial run, the proof of concept, if you will, the original browser, as you'll remember, was written only for Unix computers. The next obvious order of business was to develop versions of Mosaic for other platforms, the platforms the rest of the world was familiar with. Other NCSA programmers signed on to program these versions, each according to his own platform of choice. John Middlehauser and Chris Wilson developed the PC version. Alex MacDaddy Tautic and Mike McCool wrote the Macintosh port. And since XMosaic only handled the consumption end of the web experience, the growing team thought it would be a good idea to tackle the development end as well. Thus, McCool's twin brother, Rob, wrote Mosaic web server and publishing software that would eventually be released alongside the browsers. Very quickly, Mosaic became a smashing success. The X was dropped from the name, of course, Mosaic becoming the name of the software program in all its various flavors. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Within a few weeks, tens of thousands of people had downloaded copies. Within months, hundreds of thousands. Not that it had much in the way of competition, but in no time at all, Mosaic became the most popular browser on the web. Before long, Andreessen and the team could rightly claim that they had created one of the most popular pieces of software ever to be released on the internet. Andreessen himself began personally fielding thousands of emails from users who were reporting bugs, offering developmental support, and generally cheering on the program. From this day forward, Andreessen would become the public face, or at least the internet face, of the Mosaic project. It was he who harnessed the bug reports and doled them out to the team for fixing, and he who announced new versions and feature updates to the growing legions of Mosaic fans on the web. What made Mosaic so popular so quickly? 
For one thing, it was the first web browser to support inline images on web pages. Images on websites made them more interesting, more user-friendly, and generally more inviting. Some early web users were against the use of images, fearing that they would make the web less serious and academic. Andreessen himself admitted, quote, Tim Berners-Lee balled me out in the summer of 93 for adding images to the thing, end quote. And even Bina was against the images at first, concerned about the bandwidth issues that images would bring to the web. This was still in the era of dial-up modems, of course. As Bina was to say later, quote, And I was right. People abused it horribly. But Mark was also right. As a result of the glitz and glitter, thousands of people wasted time to put in pretty pictures and valuable information on the web, and millions of people use it. End quote. It was all about letting the riffraff in, remember? But the images were just part of it. With the server software, sounds and even video would eventually be supported, helping make the web come alive even more. And user-friendly features were baked right into the design of the browser itself. For one thing, the browser operated in a windowed environment, which would make it familiar to the vast majority of computer users who used Windows or Macs. You could use a mouse to click around and navigate. And in fact, it was John Middlehauser's innovation that the mouse pointer would change into the shape of a hand when it hovered over a link on a web page. Now commonplace features like bookmarks and browsing histories were added. An early innovation was the support of forums, so that publishers of web pages could receive information back from web surfers. Andreessen himself came up with the idea of the stop button that could stop a page in the act of loading. Before this, the browser would just freeze up if downloading got stalled, and there was no way to break a connection. All of these features, but especially the availability to Windows and Mac users, made Mosaic's popularity soar even more. Hundreds of thousands of users soon became millions. The Mosaic web browser blew up. There's really no other way to describe it. Some of its popularity was obviously a matter of piggybacking on the explosive growth of the World Wide Web as a new medium. In January of 1993, when Mosaic launched, the number of websites in existence was only in the hundreds. But by the end of 1994 the number of websites had passed tens of thousands. The people browsing the web at this time were still largely in science and academic circles, but that was changing rapidly. If you could find your way to the web, you were liable to find anything under the sun. And thanks to Mosaic's one-two punch of browser and server software, you could publish anything you wanted as well. Mosaic and the web complemented each other each symbiotically fueling the growth of the other. It was estimated by some that Mosaic brought a million new users to the web in the space of only six months. In the small but growing world of the World Wide Web, the Mosaic team was suddenly as well known as Tim Berners-Lee, the web's founder. Because he was the public relations face of Mosaic, Mark Andreessen's own fame grew proportionally along with Mosaic's. At one of the first-ever web development conferences in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the summer of 1993, Andreessen wore a name tag that simply said, 
Mark. Everyone knew that he was Mark, the quote-unquote leader of the Mosaic Project, or at least the guy who answered all the Mosaic emails. Whether or not Andreessen really was formally the leader of the Mosaic team is somewhat amorphous. He felt like the project had been his baby almost from the very beginning, and because he fielded the feedback from users, he took the lead in deciding which things should be improved and which features should be added, that sort of thing. He assigned those tasks accordingly, just as he had done in his partnership with Bina. And so in that sense, Andreessen could be thought of as the de facto leader of the team, the one who was helping keep the larger project on track. He wasn't doing the coding anymore. He left that to other, better programmers on the team. But the overall direction he provided to the group made Andreessen a sort of first among equals. As Alex Tatik would remember it later, quote, Mark's word was final. He had the best grasp of the overall picture, end quote. But the loosey-goosey days of freewheeling all-night coding sessions and ad hoc feature development were numbered. Mosaic had become so popular so quickly that it was perhaps inevitable that the NCSA would want to take a greater interest in the program. After all, this little side project, run largely by lower-level staffers, had become far more than a research venture. It was becoming a mainstream phenomenon, with an impact on the wider world beyond anything the NCSA had produced before. Mosaic became a major NCSA priority starting about now. And so the upper levels of NCSA management began to assert ever greater control over the project. To say the least, this change in circumstances started to rankle with the existing Mosaic team members. We mostly have their version of this stage of events, and from largely after the fact, but reading all of their accounts, we can best sum things up this way. Mosaic had been a huge overnight success. It was writing the growth of the web and helping to make the web mainstream. It was a world-changing achievement, a phenomenon. And then suddenly... It felt like the adults had seen all the success that the kids were having with their little side project, so they stepped in and said, we'll take it from here, boys. For example, here's how John Middlehauser put it later. He was the coder of the original PC version of Mosaic and inventor of the hand icon. The way he describes it, whereas during the initial browser work, the NCSA bigwigs didn't seem to, quote, have any clue who we were and we liked it that way, End quote. Once Mosaic took off, Middlehauser says, quote, We suddenly found ourselves in meetings with 40 people planning our next features, as opposed to the five of us making plans at 2 a.m. over pizza and Cokes. Alex, Tatik, who had basically done the Mac version, suddenly found out that there were three or four other people working on it with him, according to the NCSA. And they were like his bosses, telling him what to do and stuff. End quote. The original Mosaic team did not take well to people telling them what to do and stuff. They did not like 40-person meetings. These were mostly college kids, remember? They're still a bit anarchic, dubious of authority. So, Middlehauser says, quote, We practice passive resistance. We ignored them. End quote. But passive resistance wasn't going to work. 
The stakes were simply too high. The entire original Mosaic team was suddenly banned from email. The word came down that from now on, customer support, product development, and community outreach would go through official NCSA channels. Now, this could certainly be justified by the amazing growth of the Mosaic project and what it had achieved. As the Mosaic user base approached tens of millions, surely it was time to get more organized and efficient in terms of how the project continued to develop. But to the original team, and to Mark Andreessen especially, it sort of started to feel like a passive-aggressive way of stepping between the creators of Mosaic and the users. Andreessen himself was specifically told to step down from his unofficial role as the public spokesperson for Mosaic. When he protested this, he was told, quote, Don't you think it's time to give someone else a chance to share the glory? End quote. It quickly became clear, by the way, who was going to have a larger share of the Mosaic glory from then on. In December of 1993, Mosaic and the Web made the front page of no less than the New York Times. NCSA director Larry Smarr was pictured and quoted. He said, quote, Mosaic is the first window into cyberspace, end quote. What's interesting in reading that article today is that neither Mark Andreessen nor anyone else on the Mosaic team was even mentioned. And so just as rapidly as we've had the story of the meteoric rise of Mosaic, we're abruptly going to have to leave Mosaic behind. As I've said, the legend has come down, especially with what was soon to follow, that Mosaic was a great idea, but it was doomed to failure because it was stuck behind the ivory towers of academia. The NCSA didn't know what to do with Mosaic, or so this story goes. They were maybe even jealous of the nerd celebrity that the quote-unquote kids of the original Mosaic team had attained. The stodgy researchers of the NCSA didn't realize that what they really had on their hands was a world-changing commercial product, not a project. Again, I'm not entirely convinced that this was the case. Clash of Styles aside, no one involved could have been prepared for the success that Mosaic had. What we do know is that, by all accounts, Andreessen was the most disgruntled of the lot. He felt like his baby had been taken away from him. And he was due to graduate that same December. So it was assumed that after graduation, he would be offered a full-time position at the NCSA. Andreessen himself hoped privately to maybe be made formally the head of the Mosaic Project, if that were to happen, then he could possibly reorganize things and run the project the way it used to be run before the, quote, adults took over. Maybe he could even help the NCSA to commercialize and expand Mosaic. He had a lot of thoughts on that subject, in fact. Reportedly, Andreessen did, in fact, get a job offer from the NCSA, but it came with a catch. He was definitely not going to be made the manager of the Mosaic project that would stay firmly in the hands of the adults. After the fact, Mark Andreessen was sanguine about his parting ways with the NCSA. He said, quote, They were raking in millions of dollars per year in federal money for supercomputing, and no one really wanted to use supercomputers anymore, so they sort of had two alternatives. 
One was to give up the federal funding, and one was to find something else to do, end quote. Obviously, Mosaic was that something else that the NCSA wanted to do. Andreessen decided that it didn't matter to him. He wanted to find something else to do also. So he didn't even bother to pick up his diploma. By the end of December 1993, Mark Andreessen apparently was already in Silicon Valley looking for a job. What exactly was the something else that Mark Andreessen could do now? Well, at this point in his life, Andreessen is a young, talented programmer with proven leadership skills, plenty of vision about the future of the web, and a proven track record of success. After all, he has been instrumental in the development of an application that millions of people are using. Surely that's a calling card that can lead inexorably to fame and fortune. To us now, the answer is obvious. He should form a startup, get venture capital backing, release a product, gain millions of users, go public, become a billionaire. But this is only the obvious path to modern minds because of the something else that Mark Andreessen would go on to do, co-found Netscape. At the time, there was no template for Mark Andreessen to do a startup because Mark Andreessen hadn't created that template yet. After all, he was just a kid from the Midwest who knew he liked the internet, and that was about it. As Andreessen himself said later, quote, I had some idea that I wanted to be part of a new company, but I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was, 